This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the roller coaster ride in Washington is over. They have passed a continuing resolution and addressed the budget crisis, at least for now, but it's had a big impact on millions of Americans uh, across this country. Mark, I think we have managed to avoid disaster, but done with a tactic just too familiar, too often kicking the can down the road to be dealt with at another time. You know, the women of the Senate came together, both bipartisan uh, on the uh, Democratic side and the Republican side, and they put together uh, a proposal that's uh, accepted to push the temporary budget out till January 15th and borrowing powers February 7th. Uh, my hope is that this is a, a lesson for both the House and the Senate, that they have to come together in a bipartisan way to move the agenda forward. Well, Mark, I do understand that there were some compromises made, and as part of the deal, conservatives in the House demanded additional income verification for folks enrolling in the online insurance marketplaces under Obamacare. But really, income verification was already part of the law's requirements and part of the exchange application. It really was, and we'll see how all of this gets carried out over the next few months. And speaking of uh, the Affordable Care Act and the exchanges, those exchanges have been up and running for a few weeks now. Kind of a tale of two nations. The states that set up their own exchanges, at least on a technical level, have reported uh, a much smoother process. But in the states, 36 of them that are relying on the federal exchange, uh, they've really been bedoubled by IT problems since the beginning. There's going to be an autopsy on all of this at some point where people will look critically at it. There are some, as you said, some very good activities going on in different states, and hopefully that will spread across the country. And people um, out there have been trained to help people. One group is Enroll America. That's a national volunteer organization that's deploying people to assist in the online application process, especially in the states that haven't developed as much support as they may need. And you can uh, find out more about Enroll America by going to enrollamerica.org. And in spite of uh, all the focus on enrollment in the Affordable Care Act, dramatic change is happening every day in health care. And our guest today knows a lot about that. That's Dr. Dennis Charney, the dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, where they are undergoing a massive transformation in their health system, as well as in the medical school that trains the health professionals of the next generation. You know, they are making big data a central player in their restructured medical school program, as well as in their health system. Dr. Charney will tell us about the changes going underway that are transforming their approach to training the next generation of medical professionals. It looks like an interesting model for other medical training institutions to learn from. And we will also hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who will be looking into some false claims about health reform that have been spoken recently in the public domain. No matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Dennis Charney in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Government is back in business after a weeks-long shutdown, and what did it cost the American economy? About $24 billion, according to estimates from Standard & Poor's rating agency. Wall Street analysts predict dire consequences if Congress doesn't get its act together soon. China has already downgraded its rating of the American Treasury bonds due to the shutdown, near default, and unresolved debt ceiling issues. What didn't make it past the shutdown was a GOP attempt to repeal the medical device tax. 
It's part of the Affordable Care Act designed to help raise funds to pay for the law. Meanwhile, things are churning along slowly on the federal health exchanges while they remain open. Some predict many weeks or even months of round-the-clock troubleshooting before that system revs up to full speed. And while they're running more smoothly for the most part, there are glitches and hang-ups on the state-based exchanges. A number of states are reporting problems with their lists of doctors, procedures, and medications shown to be covered by each of the plans. Covered California had to remove their doctor list entirely because it was so problematic. On the whole, states are doing a fairly good job of assisting residents in signing up for coverage. Meanwhile, mark your calendars. The spending authority only continues to January 15th, and the federal borrowing privileges extended through February 7th. The budget debate and accompanying woes are far from over. And simultaneously, it's time again for open enrollment for Medicare coverage. Seniors are being urged to really read the fine print this year. A number of plans may have different coverage than the previous year. Seniors being told not to assume their coverage will remain the same. Mirror, mirror on the wall. What city's the largest drug consumer of all? When it comes to Medicare prescription drug consumption, the winner is Miami. The average senior in Miami spent close to $5,000 per year on prescription drugs. Many in the high-risk categories, the national average is about half that. There are a couple of reasons, according to Dr. Jeffrey Munson, lead author of the Dartmouth Report. One reason was simply that Miami has traditionally been a high-use region. Another reason, higher percentage of specialists there, more likely to prescribe more targeted drug regimens. And want to get little Johnny to sleep better at night and behave better during the day? It's not in a pill. It's in the discipline, it seems. Recent study in Great Britain showed a direct correlation between later bed time hours for children and less well-behaved kids during the day. That's nothing new, but what the study did find out was those kids with variable bedtimes each night fared far worse across the board. So early to bed, same time every night, makes a child chipper, mindful, and bright. I'm Arianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Dennis Charney, Dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and President for Academic Affairs. Dr. Charney is a professor of psychiatry, neuroscience, and systems therapeutics and is a world expert on neurobiology and the treatment of mood and anxiety disorders. Dr. Charney has several patents to his name and is author of over 700 published articles and several books, including The Neurobiology of Mental Illness and Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's greatest challenges. Dr. Charney is a former scientific director at the National Institute of Mental Health and a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Science. Dr. Charney, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm happy to join you today. Well, the Affordable Care Act has been keeping you and your organization quite busy. Uh, the Mount Sinai Health Systems in New York City recently gone under a significant transformation, including the creation of an affordable uh, care organization. You've also been thinking hard about training that next generation of healthcare professionals as a necessary approach to preparing your organization and the country for uh, its future challenges. Tell us about your vision for the redesigned healthcare system in the age of the Affordable Care Act, coupled with uh, significant technological advances. I'm happy to. Uh as you may know, about two weeks ago, uh, we concluded an agreement to merge with the Continuum Health Partners System to form the Mount Sinai Health System, which now consists of seven hospitals, a large ambulatory care network associated with a single medical school, and that's the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. 
the healthcare system will be responsible for two and a half million outpatient visits, almost 40% of the discharges in Manhattan here. And it allows us to develop new methods, innovative methods of delivering outstanding health care to a large population. In other words, population management of health, which is a key component of the Affordable Care Act. And as you mentioned, we also have an accountable care organization, an ACO, which looks almost like an experimental way in the beginning to determine how can we lower the cost of health care while improving quality. So through these two processes, one is uh, now having one of the largest health care systems uh, in the nation with a single medical school and the ACO, we're developing novel methods to deliver health care. Well, Dr. Charney, it uh, certainly sounds like you are breaking some new ground and breaking it in a very big and significant way. And I'd like to ask about the work that you're doing with assembling data for population management. I understand yep. that you're investing significantly in a data hub that you've hired the original or one of the original data scientists from Facebook um, yep. and a growing team to figure this out and at the same time also are building a biobank at Mount Sinai where genetic information can be stored and then incorporated into your data stream to get better insights into effective treatments and, and I imagine personalized treatment as well. Maybe you could share with us, you have, you have so much going on simultaneously. Where yep. are you in the process of setting up this massive data infrastructure? And when do you think you'll begin to see impact either on teaching or patient outcomes? So all those things are happening here at Mount Sinai. One of the key elements of, of being able to provide great care in a large healthcare system is that you must be data-driven uh, so that you know what factors relate to uh, patient wellness, what factors relate to readmission, and how do you create an approach to uh, wellness and primary care that ultimately enhances the health of your community. In order to be able to do that, you need to have expertise in what is now called big data analytics and how that might relate to delivering healthcare. So we've been investing a lot in that area, as you allude to. Eric Schatt is the head of our Department of Genomics and Multiscale Biology. He's one of the pioneers in big data analytics and he helped us recruit Jeff Hammerback, who you alluded to, who was, used to work for Facebook and helped develop the large data analytic platform for Facebook. And Jeff Hammerbacker, who is now an assistant professor here and is working with Eric Schatz's team, has decided to take his skills that he developed at Facebook and devote that to biomedical research and healthcare delivery. In order to accomplish this, we've had to invest a lot in high-performance computing systems. And apparently, when you invest enough, you can name your computer. <laughs> so we have a computer that now is called Minerva, which is the goddess of wisdom. Right. And that computer is the infrastructure that is required to analyze a really enormous amounts of data from our electronic medical record, from our genomics program, imaging program, and to essentially put it all together and help us make, ultimately, clinical decision for the benefit of our patients. And I'll just give you one example of how that actually works. As many of your listeners may know, the ability to sequence the human genome has gone down enormously in cost so that uh, shortly the cost of sequencing one's genetics will be at the level of a lab test. In order to make that work in delivering healthcare, we now take genomic data, we put it together with one's clinical data, and so that at the point of care, our doctors can now be have information that enables them to make decisions based on the patient's genetics. 
in terms of what drugs they are given to get the best outcomes. Well, that is exciting. I'd certainly like to talk a little more about big data and what is good, actionable data for clinicians. But first, we've heard from a lot of folks who've come on our show about the difficulty of dealing with the silos in healthcare. And it's taken a long time to build them and deconstructing the system while continuing to deliver care can be a real challenge, sort of the proverbial flying the jet and changing out the engines at the same time. And you're not only breaking down silos within your system, you're also partnering with some exciting external partners like Rensselaer Polytech Institute to seek outside assistance in system transformation. So how are you achieving this transformation on such a large scale while Mount Sinai continues to treat 2.5 million outpatient visits, 40% of the discharges in Manhattan? That's a lot of balls to keep up in the air. Tell us how you're doing that. Well, you know, first uh, in analyzing, you know, whether or not the the merger with the Continuum Health Partners system made sense, uh, you know, we spent about a year developing plans to integrate the systems and determine you know, how to achieve excellence throughout a seven-hospital system. And, and so even though we only recently actually merged, the planning had been going on you know, for a year. And just like you said, we had to continue to deliver outstanding care while we merged the systems. So we have figured out ways how to do that. We have had lots of meetings of the leaders of our different uh, departments and, and institutes and ultimately, what we're going to develop is uh, clinical centers of excellence uh, throughout the Mount Sinai healthcare system, such as diabetes, HIV, pulmonary uh, disease, and primary care. Uh, and in fact, one of the key ingredients for achieving wellness in a population is to have a very strong primary care uh, network. So all these initiatives began before we completed the merger, and now we are hitting the ground running to literally change healthcare in Manhattan and around the rest of New York City and, and the tri-state area. We are also investing a lot in innovation, and that's where the partnership with Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute comes in. Uh, more and more, uh, digital medicine is going to be important in how we deliver healthcare, so that more care can happen literally in the home and not in a hospital uh, or outpatient clinic or doctor's office or in the hospital itself. And we can do that because of the advances in digital medicine. It allows you to take blood pressure and measure glucose levels and uh, to do EKGs literally in the home. We can communicate in a very robust way with our patients, you know, while they're in the home setting. And so that offers a lot of advantages because literally what's important about achieving health is being healthy in your community and you're in your home. So we're going to take advantage in part with our partnership with RPI, which is, has a lot of expertise mm-hmm. in digital health, uh, to literally have a healthcare system that starts in one's home. Well, Dr. Charney, you're obviously doing uh, really remarkable work in delivery system redesign and technology advances, but I know that there's a very core focus also on your mission of training and teaching and, and training that next generation to be the providers and the scientists and the leaders in this transformed system. And I understand that uh, you're committing really quite a massive investment, $2 billion, towards a plan to thoroughly transform that medical training program to focus 
on uh, some of these changes to focus on translational medicine, utilizing the emerging tools in biomedics and genomics and other technologies, as you've described, to create better solutions to treatment and patient care. Maybe you could share with us some about this new training approach, how you're doing that. And I wonder if also, um, although the focus here, I think, is on your medical training. I know you're there in New York with the Macy Foundation and have the same push for intercollaborative professional practice and education that all institutions are trying to achieve. So maybe uh, share with us a little bit about that training mission. Yeah, as you mentioned, we are in the middle of implementing a uh, $2 billion plus uh, strategic plan that goes from conducting very basic research that ultimately we hope will lead to cures for serious medical diseases uh, through the kind of care we currently deliver patient. And so it's, in a sense, uh, delivering care now and discovering care for the future is part of our strategic plan. And the ultimate goal of the strategic plan is to make discoveries that change the way medicine is practiced, whether it's through novel approaches to digital health, as I mentioned, or the discovering of new medicines for cancer or heart disease or serious mental illness or new medical or surgical devices to improve surgical outcomes. That's all part of our plan. To achieve that, though, we have to be training literally the best and the brightest medical students, graduate students, and other uh, trainees. And we want to have a culture of entrepreneurship that our students think out of the box, almost like a Silicon Valley approach to uh, training and uh, discovery. So in order to do that, uh, we have revamped our medical training curriculum and even the way we admit students to our medical school. Uh, We are actively recruiting medical students from disciplines that typically have not thought of going to medical school, like students with expertise in computer science and mathematics, engineering, and physics. Uh, We are teaching our students how to be entrepreneurs and innovative and literally think that they can change you know, medicine early in their career. So what, what that's done is uh, lead to a, a culture of you know, excitement and innovation here at Mount Sinai, starting with our students and ending with the patient experience. We're speaking today with Dr. Dennis Charney, Dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and President for Academic Affairs. Dr. Charney is a world expert on neurobiology and the treatment of mood and anxiety disorders and oversees one of the largest collections of National Institutes of Health Studies among the nation's medical schools. Dr. Charney, a significant focus of your work is in conducting research, and your specific area of expertise is in psychiatry and neuropharmacology. But you seem to have a dysfunctional patient in Washington that is impacting everyone's health. The sequester obviously had an enormous impact on the NIH budget and to the shutdown completely. Tell us, first of all, about some of the exciting research that you are doing, but also the impact on the lack of adequate funding for NIH and the shutdown is having on your your larger plans. Yeah, you know, as Dickens wrote, it's, it's the best in times and the worst of times. It's the best of times in that we've never had so many tools to discover the causes of serious medical diseases and, and based on that to develop new treatments. Uh, we're making rapid progress in discovering new approaches to the treatment of cancer. Now it's becoming more of a chronic disease with certain cancers. In in mental illness, uh, our scientists have discovered uh, new approaches for the treatment of uh, depression and are working very hard at developing better treatments for serious diseases, 
early in life like autism and late in life like Alzheimer's disease. Our microbiologists have discovered uh, new methods to develop a universal flu uh, vaccine. So you wouldn't have to get a flu shot ultimately um, every year, but maybe every you know 10 years. There's just so many you know, exciting things now happening. But the problem is that we're not getting the funding we need to accomplish what we know we can now accomplish. The sequester resulted in you know, literally a, a decrease in NIH funding in real dollars. And when you take into account inflations, it was a substantial mm-hmm. uh, decrease. And the nation's health depends on research funded by the NIH. And with the shutdown in the, in the government, uh, all new applications stopped being evaluated. And so we were making zero progress. And mm-hmm. it's very important for your listeners uh, to make contact with their representatives to get them to fund the NIH, the National Science Foundation, uh, so that we can achieve the potential that we currently have, and that is to change medicine and the practice of medicine in a very rapid way like never before. Dr. Charney, I know your your own personal clinical and scholarly and research focus has been in the fields of psychiatry and neuroscience. You've written extensively on the subject and authored many seminal works, uh, including the Neurobiology of Mental Illness and last year's critically acclaimed Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges Aimed at the General population. I think there is an increased understanding in the population, both on the impact and the outcomes of adverse childhood events, and certainly with our returning veterans from the wars of uh, the effects of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder on people's lives. I wonder if you could share uh, with our listeners what you see as breakthroughs in these areas of of dealing with problems like post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, thank you for saying that. My own research has focused on discovering new treatments for depression and anxiety disorders. And in addition, and more recently, over the past 10 years or so, with a colleague, uh, Stephen Southwick from uh, Yale University, uh, we have been studying resilience, and that is the ability to overcome uh, serious uh, traumas in one's life that we all experience at, at some point, and to literally experience a growth from overcoming uh, challenges. And, and the way we've studied that is we identified people who were resilient, who had overcome very difficult things in their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, We studied prisoners of war, uh, victims of earthquakes in uh, Pakistan and poverty and abuse in uh, the inner city, women who had overcome the ravages of rape. And through all that work and literally interviewing and getting to know hundreds of people, we developed what we consider a bit of a prescription or a roadmap to become a more resilient uh, person. And we have also come to the conclusion that anybody can become more resilient. Uh, We're all going to face the loss of a loved one. So that's going to happen. And so you want to develop the the psychological toolbox to uh, be able to handle those that stress in your life. And that's been the result of our work on on resilience, to develop a, a prescription for resilience so that you can literally train yourself to become a more resilient person. Well, Dr. Turnett, you have a conference coming up, the second annual Sinai Innovations Conference that will focus entirely on emerging notion of team science, uh, not just in healthcare, but across all the disciplines. And yeah, you have a pretty a great and diverse panel of experts attending from healthcare, technology, arts, sports. I believe you have uh, Yankees manager Joe Torre is participating. Veteran Yankee manager Joe Torre is participating. Tell us about the this new approach to team science and the impact it's poised to have on the future of healthcare. Yeah, you know, as, as Hillary 
Clinton has written, you need a village to accomplish great things. And that, that's certainly now true in biomedical research and innovation and healthcare delivery. Uh, you can't do it by yourself. Uh, you, you literally can't make major discoveries uh, in a single lab anymore. You, you need teams of people working together to make discoveries that make a difference. Geneticists need to work with biologists. The biologists need to work with physician scientists. and Physician scientists need to work with clinicians. So you, you do have to work to really make fundamental progress. You need to function as a great group where you synergize. And one of the reasons we asked Joe Torrey, to participate is, um, you know, he did win four world championships with the Yanks. Right, it's a good reason. <laughs> we hope that happens, starts happening again, you know, with the Yanks. And and we, you know, we thought we can get advice from, uh, you know, other areas on how to you bring people together to achieve greatness. We're speaking today with Dr. Dennis Charney, Dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and President for Academic Affairs at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. You can learn more about his work by going to mountsinai.org. Dr. Charney, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. You're welcome. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, the medical device excise tax that's part of the Affordable Care Act got some attention recently. A day after the House of Representatives voted to repeal it as part of a budget resolution, House Speaker John Boehner said that the medical device tax, quote, is costing us tens of thousands of jobs that are being shipped overseas. The excise tax is 2.3% and falls on clinical medical devices, things like CAT scan machines, stents, and other devices sold to hospitals and healthcare providers. It doesn't apply to consumer devices purchased directly by the public. The tax went into effect in January of this year, and since businesses can deduct excise taxes, the net effect is about 1.5%, as estimated by Moody's. It's true that some companies have announced the elimination of several thousand positions, not just in the United States, but around the world. But we found no evidence that the number has reached the tens of thousands, as Boehner said, or that all those jobs are going overseas. The Republican National Committee and a lobbying group called AdvaMed have compiled clips of medical device companies announcing job eliminations. The list show 12 companies announcing the elimination of at most 8,725 positions. Most companies didn't blame the reduction entirely on the medical device tax, and a few made no mention of the tax at all. Medical device companies are also making large investments overseas, but those are driven in large part by growth in emerging markets, including China, India, Brazil, and Russia. The repeal of the tax was not part of the final legislation that ended the government shutdown. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Walking. Sounds simple, but it's tricky business when you've lost a limb. And with the proliferation of IED explosions in our recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've seen the devastating effects of these injuries too frequently. But all of these amputees have spurred a new rush in science to build a better prosthetic. Traditional artificial feet and limbs do a pretty good job of getting amputees on their feet again, but they have limitations, and on average, amputees take a fall at least once a year because of a lack of proficiency of the artificial limb to function naturally. Scientists at Michigan Tech have developed a computerized bionic limb that pivots and rotates just like a natural ankle would, allowing for better balance while in motion. The ankle has, it can move more than just toe up and uh, toe down. It allows the foot to roll uh, side to side. It allows the wearer to turn more naturally. Professor Mo Rostgar, lead developer on the team, says that what really makes all the difference here is that their bionic limb has computer sensors on the bottom of the foot that alerts the limb to potential changes in gait. When we walk, the ankle adapts to different terrain. For example, if there is a pebble and you walk on top of it, the ankle rolls, right? So if you have the same kind of mechanism in the prosthesis in the ankle that we have, uh, eventually it allows better stability for the amputees. It prevents them from falling often. He teamed up with researchers at the Mayo Clinic who are helping to refine the prosthesis and test its reliability. It has cables, so it allows us to move the electrical motors that are in the device to virtually anywhere that we want. This is a good flexibility because it prevents uh, focusing all the weights in the, in the area of the lost limb. So there is a good flexibility in um, distributing the weight of the device. That's a feature that uh, I hope that somehow help amputees in order to uh, increase their mobility. A bionic artificial limb that uses advanced microprocessors to facilitate more natural walking for amputees, improving their safety as well as their dignity and quality of life, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.